0: Okay, So this morning, as we start this series called Invasion, this is the series or the time of year that we called Advent. Advent obviously speaks of the first coming of the Lord. When, when the advent of something is indicated, it's talk, talking about something that has arrived, the coming of the Lord. His first advent was in a manger in Bethlehem. And rather than allowing ourselves to become so absorbed in the um, gross commercialization of the season. As believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are built on the solid rock of the word, we make a real focus on preparing our hearts for his second Advent. And so the season of Advent carries consistent themes every year. The first Sunday of Advent is the theme of hope. The second Sunday of Advent is the theme of love. The third is joy, the fourth is peace, and then finally Christmas Eve is light, Christ the light of the world. And in this message called invasion, we normally think of that word as uh, two warring nations and maybe one that is able to overpower another actually puts their troops on their soil and moves into the territory uh, in an area of weakness. And it's what we think of in terms of warfare or a military invasion. God's invasion of the planet wasn't by sending a Messiah on a white horse as a military commander to set up a political kingdom. This is what the natural Jewish people were looking for. And they were thrown off guard a little bit because their expectations were all wrong. When Jesus came, he sneaked in basically by coming one of us. He be, he became one of us, is what I intended to say. And so God shows up wrapped in human flesh. And he doesn't come as a full-grown man, as a prophet coming up out of the wilderness to influence the minds of people. But he comes as the most vulnerable thing on the planet. And that is a human baby. You can see all of those YouTube videos or uh, GIFs on the internet or things that we send with animals that soon as babies are born, a number of them arise to their feet within a matter of moments, sometimes hours, and they're already walking. It takes a human baby anywhere from uh, seven or eight months up to sometimes 14 or 15 months before they take their first steps. Babies of the human genus and species take the longest to mature it is said scientifically that it takes 21 years to reach adulthood. Now, some parents in the room might argue that it's actually much longer than that. And I, I'm just joking, okay, for those of you that are, that are at that point. We, we see you as full-grown young men and women. But I will acknowledge myself that there were some areas of maturity that I didn't have until I was well into my 20s, mid-20s. Just growing in wisdom and knowledge. And uh, just relationships and uh, a number of things sometimes that we're just not equipped to handle until we actually handle them in life. And so this whole invasion concept is the idea of God sort of sneaking in backwards, kind of behind us. And in order to show his love for us, he actually becomes one of us. And then demonstrates a perfect life in the person, in the human life of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't just human. He was the first God-man. He was fully God and fully man all at the same time. Uh, At Christmas, we refer to the doctrine of incarnation. Everybody say incarnation. Now, as Christians, we believe in incarnation. We do not believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is to actually come back again and inhabit a body, the same individual. Eastern religions, have this kind of concept of, of, of the wheel of karma and samsara. Hindu, Buddhists teach this idea that until you reach a state of perfection, that you're constantly being reborn either into a lower life form, if you really screwed up the last time around. You might come back as a cockroach. Now, this wasn't in my first message, but I just for some reason feel that I need to step off into this and chase this rabbit for a second. That's the reason when you go to some of these foreign countries, you don't see them killing any rats because that might be granny that's that rat right there. <laughs> or, or you don't see them eating cows because it's something that is worshipped. And, uh, you know, folk all the time, you know, try to th- throw some stuff at you and, you know, how you, know, you ought to be a vegan. Well, let me tell you, vegetables are mentioned 13 times in the Bible. Meat's mentioned 290 times. Look at your neighbor and say, eat biblically. Now, if you're a vegan, praise God. But I believe God gives me meat in due season, is what the scripture said. <laughs> Am I preaching, Brother Donnie? Come on, Pastor Donnie, help me. Amen corner. It says, yeah, amen. He's nodding. All right. So we, as believers, we believe in incarnation. We, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So you get one shot at this. You get one body. Psalm 90 says, 70 years are given to us, and if by reason of strength, 80. And so we have a limited amount of time. I've had to I pre- preach a funeral yesterday for a young 23-year-old, beautiful young man. His life was cut way too short. I lost a friend this week, Perry Reginelli, in our church, had a massive stroke and went to be with the Lord Friday, and 62 years old, and then the morning that I was dealing with both of these, trying to talk between these two families and trying to plan for the funeral that I was going to preach yesterday, got a text from Don Bell that said, Miss Mama Dell Pollard, Anita's mom, 94 years old, saint of the Lord, had passed and gone on to her heavenly reward. And I just thought how strange it was that we had this juxtaposition of this three generations of a 20-something, a 60-something, and a 90-something. And the difference that it made me feel in terms of it's way easier to celebrate a life that's been full of years. And you know that 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 Mama Dell rang all of the juice out of the grapes in her life. Love the Lord. Going to be a great celebration for her. I believe Perry's life was cut short. And I know that Trey Chandler's life was cut short. And yesterday, for a few moments, I shared just about the uncertainty of life. The scripture says, In the the book of James, that our life is like the morning fog. I believe a newer translation says like the mist or the vapor of a cloud. Job 7, 6 says that our our, our life moves faster than, than the weaver's shuttle. And it's metaphors that we see in the scripture that all talk about the brevity of life. And the Bible says in Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days aright so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. One of the newer translations says... Teach us to recognize the brevity of life so that we can grow in wisdom. How I many you know life is short and life is precious? And in the middle of all of this struggle that we have, we live on a planet that, that has so much incredible beauty and goodness. At the same time, there is a devastating amount of darkness and evil. And there's this conflict between the two. And in the middle of all of the great blessings of God, and yet the, the, the depravity of man, and the, the crime, and the, the, the bigotry, and, and the thievery, and, and the competition, and the jealousy. In in the midst of that, there is love and forgiveness and patience and goodness and, and the beautiful things of God. And there is light and then there is darkness. But I want to tell you that the light is stronger than the darkness. In the middle of all of that struggle, there is still hope. And so this morning, I want to talk to you for a few moments about the hope invasion. And how God sneaked in through the back door in order to be able to so identify with us that he would come and show up as one of us and live the demands of a life of holiness and then lay down his life sacrificially as a substitute in my place and yours. So that the holiness of God's nature and the demands of his righteousness would be met and he would, able, he would be able to literally wash our sins away. And so all of this invasion that we celebrate in Christianity began in a manger with the most vulnerable of species, a human baby boy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. It started as a tiny seed that grew up to become a man that enlisted followers and said, "Except you, forsake all, and follow me. You are not my disciples. It emerged into a Savior who walked the planet, who walked certainly the shores of Galilee and lived a life of perfection and every demand of the holiness of God, raising the dead and opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears and literally setting into a quizzical mode the religious leaders of the day. And the crazy thing is that sinners weren't the ones that fought him. It was religious people that hated him. God, help us and be reminded sometimes the religious spirits that can get on us, we can get too churchy. I said we can get too churchy, especially when we start getting real comfortable with a bony pharisaical finger of accusation at somebody else, forgetting that we've got three pointing right back at us because ain't nobody in the room perfect except for one, and his name is Jesus. Somebody, don't shout me down now. Come on, say amen. And so I want to talk to you for a few moments about hope. I have lived this message. This is a message that has been reborn in me. Five years of my life previous have can be described literally in hellish terms with a wife that I suddenly began to not know because of the paranoia and the depression and the stuff that we fought as a private battle because of the stigma of mental illness. A couple of people in the church knew, and we were praying and we were being Seeing behavioral therapists and we were taking, she was taking medication and doing all this and you know our story, you know my story and you know you've been with me, you've stood with me and like the psalmist that said, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I now be? That's the testimony of Israel and if it hadn't been God who'd helped me, I probably wouldn't be alive myself. If it hadn't been you who had stood with me and who had goaded me and Prodded me and and spurred me on to righteousness and to putting my trust in the Lord and keeping it there. And if it hadn't been just the strength of God on the inside to me every day to pop my eyes open and say, God, I choose, I make a choice. Many of you are in circumstances right now that you didn't choose, you didn't set into play, you didn't plant the seeds for the crop that you're reaping right now. And you can't control them, but the one thing you can control is how you respond to your circumstances. You still have a choice. You still have a choice, and in and, and a, and a scripture that I memorized as a college student my freshman year, living in Delta Hall at Arkansas State University, it says First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. Everybody say a living hope. He he made us be born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled reserved in heaven for you who were kept by the power of God unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a salvation that God yet has to be revealed, that he's going to show up and show out in your life. But the word I want to bring today is there's a living hope. Look at your neighbor and say, you have a living hope. God invaded... The planet, through the womb of a virgin about 15 years old, whose name was Mary, Holy Ghost came over her. The thing that was conceived in her was not of man. That's how she said, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel said, that's exactly how it's going to be. The holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of the Most High. The holy thing. The holy thing. There's a holy thing in your life, and his name is Jesus, somebody say, Amen. My scripture this morning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is a passage, theologically, doctrinally, that talks about the mystery of godliness. Musterion, Greek word, means sacred secret, the mystery. The Christian life is a great mystery. The the King James says, the mystery of godliness. The Christian life is a great mystery, far exceeding our understanding. But some things are clear enough. He appeared in a human body. That's how God sneaked in and became a man among us. Philippians 2 says he took on the human form, literally becoming a servant, a slave, and becoming even obedient unto death. God didn't come the way that we thought he would the first time. How many of you know he's probably not going to show up how you're expecting him to into your current circumstance? He may not be there like you expecting, but he's always going to show up and make it better than you thought you could ever have it. He appeared in a human body, was proved right by the invisible spirit, and he was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among all kinds of people. Say that with me. All kinds of peoples. Red and yellow, black and white, precious in his sight all over the world. Proclaimed among all kinds of peoples. Let me, just, let me just help you right now. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants don't have a corner on the kingdom of God. You, you, somebody should have said amen better than that. Come on, this thing is for all peoples. It's, it's for all nations. It's for all ethnos. It's for every group. As a matter of fact, God has a desire to take out of every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and people. And, and gather them around his throne, that it would be like a tapestry of all of the colors. I, I, I think of that clothing line of the colors of Benetton, or have you say the name, years ago that they used to put on TV. And it was just all these beautiful, bright colors and different-looking faces of ethnicities. That is the kingdom of God. It's not segregated, bigoted, but it's all kinds of people. Come on, somebody help me. Somebody says, why are you hitting that all the time? Every time we get in here, you're going to hit that at least a minute. I said, well, just open your eyes and read your Bible. It's all over the Bible. I can't open it up and that it isn't there. He, he was proclaimed among white people. Is that what it says? Is that funny to y'all? Do you know there's some churches this morning that act like that? How many of you know we're not going to do that at Victory Come on, read it with me like you mean it. He was proclaimed among what? Among all kinds of peoples. Believed in what? In all over the world. And he was taken up into heaven and glory. So we've got a summation written by the Apostle Paul to a young preacher. Timothy is about 30 years old, pastoring one of the largest churches in Christendom, in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor in the Bible. And he's told by Paul later on in this very epistle, do not let people despise your youth. Now, you think he's a teenage preacher, but he's actually late 20s, 28, 29, around 30 years old. When Paul was writing this pastoral epistle to a young man named Timothy, his, his student, his, someone he that he had mentored, And so he's giving him a summation of this God invasion, of how God injected hope into the world. He appeared in a human body. He was proved right. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among all kinds of peoples. He was believed in all over the world. And he was taken up into heavenly glory. That's the declaration of who Jesus is. My message text this morning is found in Psalm 33, and I want you to read this one out loud with me. Come on, everybody say it together in a good congregational reading. Here we go. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Our hope is in who? in Jesus, in God alone. Pray with me this morning. Let's bow our hearts. Father, bless your word as we've read it today. Thank you for a living, a lively hope, a hope that is rebirthed in our hearts. God, help us today to communicate to each individual here and those over the internet who may hear this at a future time. Thank you for your love for us that you've sneaked in the back door and invaded the mess and the calamity and the tragedy. Lord, that our lives experience and you bring the hope of something newborn, the rebirth of hope. Lord, by being a tiny baby born into a manger in Bethlehem, the smallest among the provinces, the nations, the princes of Israel. And yet out of that, you said a mighty ruler would come. We thank you that Jesus is that mighty ruler, our champion, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. I acknowledge that I need you. I'm desperate for you. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do among this people. Get in my thoughts. Invade my thinking today so that a word can be invested into the hearts and the lives of your people. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see, to hear and perceive and understand. The hope that the Lord has for each of them. We'll be so careful to lift up the mighty name of Jesus, and it's his name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. One thing, Bible hope is a sure expectation based on the certainty of God's promise and the integrity of his word. Bible hope is a sure expectation based on the certainty of God's promise and the integrity of Of His Word. Read it with me. Come on, everybody. Bible hope is a sure expectation based on the certainty of God's promise and the integrity of His Word. Look at the powerful words in this statement sure, certainty, integrity. There is a certainty to your hope. It's not at all like the hope that we use secularly. As a matter of fact, in the hybrid world of churchianity that is more world than it is Bible, that is more the more spirit of the age than it is the spirit of the Holy One, it becomes a I sure hope so mentality, and that's not Bible hope. Bible hope is a sure expectation that is based upon the certainty of God's promise and the integrity of his word. My first point this morning, I want to talk to you for just a few moments about new hope from an old verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, we have the story of a prophet in Jerusalem who has been called by God and told ahead of time that the people wouldn't hear what he had to say. Can you imagine being called to a ministry and God basically writes in the fine print, oh, by the way, they're not gonna, nobody's going to hear what you say. Now, you're talking about setting you up for some discouragement. I called you to pastor a church, but ain't nobody going to show up. I, 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 I sometimes felt like I was Jeremiah in the early days. Lord, where are you? You're somewhere else. You're everywhere else but here. I hear what you're doing over there among my brother's ministry over there in that other city. But, Lord, why don't you show up in this this hole called West Memphis, Arkansas? Oh, God. Somebody said, you know, of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, well, I got another question. Can anything good happen in West Memphis? Now, a few years ago, that was my heart. I, I was struggling, crying out to God with a hope. Somebody said, how did you plant victory? Did you have a church that sent you and a team and a quarter of a million dollar budget to hold you for three years? No, we didn't have any of that. I had three magic seeds. They're called faith, hope, and love. New hope from an old verse. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is probably the most abused verse in Bible, and especially if you go to Hobby Lobby or if you go to a Christian bookstore, you're going to see it printed on canvas and 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 carved into wood, and and you've probably had it in a nice Christian Hallmark card where somebody has reminded you out of a sense of encouragement. But we've done so much injustice to this verse of Scripture because it's been so ripped out of context. Because what we fail to recognize is that God says through Jeremiah, "You're in captivity. The Babylonians have marched in." They have pilfered all of the gold and the silver tools that were used in the temple of God. They've ransacked it and burned it down. They've stolen everything that was used to minister before God in his presence. And they've carried him off a thousand miles away. And a whole lot of your brothers and sisters and your Israelite cousins have been carried off to Iraq, to modern-day Iraq, which is Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the king The only thing is the Bible says that God raised him up to bring correction to his own people. And so we've forgotten that context. Jeremiah says, you know what? This thing isn't going to get fixed in the next election. It's not going to get fixed with the current administration. And I'm talking about some correlation between where we are right now and the Jewish people at 586 B.C. when the Babylonian captivity took place. And they were wanting a word that was saying God's going to rise up and he's going to defeat the army and he'll kill Nebuchadnezzar and he'll all come back to Jerusalem. We'll reestablish our temple. And Jeremiah has a word from the Lord. He said, nope, this is going to last a full 70 years. You better plant your gardens where you are. You better honor the leadership that you have in the community. That means if you got a president you didn't vote for and you don't like, you better pray for him anyhow. Come on, I'm trying to help somebody in this room. Nebuchadnezzar, I have raised up as my instrument. The Lord used him to bring adjustment and correction to the nation of Israel. Somebody said one time, we get the leadership that we deserve. God have mercy on our souls. We desperately need to cry out to God and to make him priority, number one in our lives. And remember what Jeremiah said, 70 years this thing's going to be, and he tell you, I'm, planning your, I'm telling you to plant your vineyards, build your houses, train your children, raise them up, nurture them, make champions out of them in the middle of all of the darkness, because I'm going to demonstrate that I can be light in you and through you to a whole dark culture all around you. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. He says, I'm promising you this. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Uh, the, The Bible says in the King James, I know the thoughts that I have for you, declares the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. The NLT says, they're plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. I love this because the King James says to give you an expected end. Everybody say, expectation. My, because my hope is in the Lord, my expectation is from him is what the psalmist said. Some of you ladies in this room are in states of expectation. and It's a little differently defined, but you're carrying life. You've got life on the inside of you. You have another life besides yours. And if you'll hear me this morning, as believers, as the body of Christ, particularly as the bride of Christ, we are carrying, we are pregnant with a living hope on the inside of us that we're supposed to birth into our jobs and into our careers and into our families and into our schools and into the culture around us. We're to be people that are infected with hope. We're to be people that are contagious with hope. Come on, help me a little bit this morning. Their plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. God has hope for you. He has hope for your life and hope for your marriage. God has hope for your no-good, low-down, dirty kids. I'm not thinking about anybody else's kids. I remember what I thought about mine when they were teenagers, and I described them as low-down, no-good, dirty kids. Oh, how many of you know sometimes the Lord has to have to have mercy on us on on our thought patterns. And I've, I've been there. I know that. I know what it means to, to work and labor through hope. And I want you to remember, put this up if you would please, this this future and a hope that we have, we must remember that we're to never forget the importance of context. The preacher said one time, a text without context is a pretext, which means you can open the Bible and you can make it say anything you ever live and love and want to say if you don't keep it in the context in which it's written. Who is it written to? What was going on historically when it was said? What's the grammatical breakdown of that passage? How does that chapter fit into that book and the theme of that book? How does that book fit into the covenant, Old or New? How does this whole thing fit into the overall scheme of the whole Bible? Because one part's not going to disagree with the other. God has this amazing harmony and synthesis of the themes of Scripture. I had a fellow come to my office one time, and he said, the Lord told me to divorce my wife and marry this woman. I said, that's a lying spirit from hell. That is not the Lord talking to you. I lost him as a member. And you know God's not going to tell you something that's contrary to what's in his word? Don't shout me down because I'm preaching so good. You know I'm telling you the truth this morning. Remember, never forget the importance of context. My dear friend... Amazing woman of God who literally has preached all over the world. Lost her husband 11 years ago as a product of having been exposed to Agent Orange. He was an Air Force officer and all of a sudden developed a cough and it got worse and he went to the doctor and they told him he had six months to live and two months later he was dead. Jana had a 12-year-old son at the time, Jordan. Jordan. And Bill, the the love of her life, died. They had a ministry in Alabama. Jana's written books, preached all over the world. Amazing, phenomenal woman of God. Just kind of, if you think of Beth Moore, you you could, Jana Alcorn would be another version of Beth or Kay Arthur or Priscilla Shire or any of those other anointed women of God. Jana befriended me a number of months ago and just began to talk hope to me. And through just the encouragement and kind of the coaching, through the spirit, there's just been a lifting and a rebirth of hope in my own heart. There's a we're in the same club. We both lost spouses that we love with all of our hearts. It's like I said to Abby when she was home for Thanksgiving, and she was still and she has her highs and her lows and working through all of that and. So many amazing things happening in her life right now, and she's going, why is my mama not here to see this and to talk me through this? And I just said, baby, I will never, ever, ever forget your mom. I loved her more than the air that I breathe. But she died. I didn't. She died. You didn't. And we have to move toward life. Life. We have to take steps because God has called us to life. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance in his saints is what God has invested in us. And, And I've been called to hope. I've been called to life. I've been called to joy. I've been called to recognize that there's something in front of me that's greater than what I've just been through. And the rebirth of hope just remembering sitting on the, the balcony overlooking, it was two floors up at Delta Hall, and sitting out there with a new translation of the Bible and memorizing First Peter chapter 1. Memorizing whole chapters of Scripture when I was a freshman and a sophomore in college. And remembering that passage about I've been born again unto a living hope because Jesus conquered death by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just letting that wash over me, and it began to just to surge inside my heart. And if I hadn't had some brothers that had come alongside me and encouraged me, and I'll go ahead and name names, Scott Grafton and, and, and Jeremy Soto and, and Jerome Alford and, and Jack Murphy and, and, and a recent friend, Brian Rhodes, and, and others who've just been so instrumental in coming alongside and encouraging me and Glenn Finter. And everybody, I could, I could mention all your names. You've all been vital, but there have been some that have been very near and close and dear, and they've called me in those critical moments when I was crying a river of tears by myself in my own house going, God, I, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm thankful for hope. I'm thankful that it's a new season, and God has taken bad circumstances and tragedy, and He's he sneaked in around behind me, and he's injected a rebirth of hope into my heart. And Janice said this, she's been preaching this to me for months. She says, hope is no Christian wish, but it is a confident expectation based on the character and the nature of God. Hope is no Christian wish, but it's a confident expectation. Listen, go ahead and put up the next one because this is what we deal with all the time. Bible hope is not this, man, I sure hope so. You're going to get that job? Man, I sure hope so. Well, you know, uh, what are you doing? You're going to see the doctor next week. Uh, What do you think it's going to happen? Go ahead and put up number two. Well, we're hoping and praying. How many of you know there's not a lot of victory in that? That's not Bible hope. That's that's a Christian wish right there. Man, I I really sort of wish that this would happen. I, I hope that such and such takes place. But that's not Bible hope. Bible hope is a sure expectation based on the certainty of God's promises and the integrity of God's word. Are you hearing what I'm trying to get into you this morning? Come on, come on, get yourself in an open posture. You've pulled into the filling station, but you're sitting there and got your doors locked down, and I'm trying to get the nozzle of the gas thing into your tank, and you need to open it up. Hit your locks and open up, and let me inject some hope, fuel into you this morning. Come on. It's not just, man, I hope so. It's not just, oh, well, we're hoping and praying. It's a sure and a confident expectation based upon the character and the nature of God. God said it. I believe it. That's my hope. When you talk about Bible hope, it's a picture of what is in the future that I have to reach to by faith to pull it out of the invisible into the visible realm, to bring it from my future into my right now, into my present. Hope is like the thermostat on the wall of this building and it sets the expectation of a temperature of 70 degrees so that we don't sit in here and sweat or we don't shiver. We want it warm enough that it's comfortable. But help me, Lord, on the fat guy on the platform, it's not so warm that he's sweating himself down to the ground. Are y'all follow me this morning. So that's my hope. But hope by itself... That hope has to be connected to faith, and faith is sitting on top of the unit here. It's sitting on top of the building, and it's a, it's a powerful machine that takes the picture of hope that's been set by the thermostat, and then all of a sudden the HVAC unit comes on. Everybody say, that's faith. And faith takes hold of the picture that hope is given, and it brings it out of the future into the now. Don't minimize faith. Faith is not the redheaded stepsister. No offense to the redheaded sisters. You've heard that thing about, you know, the, I felt like I was the redheaded stepchild. You know, these days everybody's so easily offended. Forgive me for the redheads. We love redheads. Praise God. Bible is not, man, I hope so. Man, we're sure hoping and praying. R.C. Sproul, the famous Reformed theologian, says it this way. Hope is called the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19. Because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has already made. Did you hear what I just said? Dr. Martin Luther King said, We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Your current circumstances may be tragic. It may be a life that's been cut short, a job that's ended, a business that failed, bankruptcy that's been declared, a relationship that didn't work out, news that you didn't expect. All of us has difficult circumstances. Each of us has difficult things we have to deal with. Our choice is our response. We must accept finite finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Bible hope is a sure expectation based on the certainty of God's promise and the integrity of his word. Point number two, the hope of God. The hope of God. God has some hope. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of what? Say it with me. Christ Jesus our, you don't even have it up there yet. Here we go. Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of, say it with me, Christ Jesus, our hope. Jesus is the hope of God. God's hope is invested in a person, in his son. And he breathed into, by the Holy Spirit, into the virgin womb of Mary. And nine months later, she delivered the seed into the world. And God invaded quietly the world of sinful men and brought righteousness and holiness in seed form into a baby, into the most vulnerable, he would grow up just like me and you and face every temptation in the human life, just like you and I have, except the, the, the difference is, is that he did all of it without sin. Tempted in all things yet without sin, Hebrews says. And so because of that, because he was able to endure those temptations and he was able to walk through them by the wisdom and by the holiness and by the understanding of God's word and his law and lived a life that was perfect and sinless, then he was a candidate to be God our Savior. The hope of God was invested in Jesus because this whole thing began in beauty and in light. It was the azure coasts of the Pacific and the islands and the beautiful peoples, red and yellow, black and white, and shades of brown. It was the mountaintops tops. It was Purple Mountain Majesties and Fruited Plains and the way they've written about America. It was the whole world over in beauty and and created in light. And there was no evil and there was no darkness. But one treasonous decision by the first couple was not magic in an apple that caused the darkness of a curse to invade the planet, but it was just the very treasonous act of disobeying the word of God that marked every one of our DNA genes. All of our chromosomes are marked with original sin. You don't have to teach a baby how to lie. If you only have one, you don't really understand yet. Get a couple of them. Go to the kitchen, stick your head around the corner and watch the older one pop the younger one on the head. And the younger one and The older one said, I didn't do anything. And the little booger's lying. And you go, who taught you how to lie? You know what? We don't have to teach our children. They're born knowing how to do that. We have to teach them not to lie. We have to teach them to tell the truth. We have to teach them to be generous and to forgive and to not to be competitive and to not be jealous and, 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 and to learn how to operate as whole people and to grow up and mature and to be emotionally stable and have a sense of our, our, our surroundings and some emotional intelligence, aware of how other people see us. And it takes time to grow them up. I think, you know, 21 years, as I think we've said, some folks say, yeah, it takes a whole lot longer. Mine evidently is on the slow course. <laughs> 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 and, and, and so I'm grateful, I'm thankful That Jesus has come and lived a life in front of us facing every temptation, every struggle, everything that we deal with. I stood before a grieving mama and her family and friends yesterday and I said, there are no words that can bring comfort but just to say I want you to know there's a God who knows exactly how you feel because he saw his son die too. We don't think about that. We don't think about the hope that God had in Jesus and then seeing him die on a cruel cross because of religious, you know, it wasn't the sinful folk that fought Jesus. They loved him because they knew they needed a savior. But it's the religious folk that were scared about their position and their, everybody say, show me the money. That's what it's all about. Always trying to protect their position. And so they were threatened by this one who was coming, showing them, turning everything upside down with them and showing them that the true kingdom of God is totally opposite to the way they're making demands upon people. Human desperation met God's prophetic declaration. Literally, while in that spot, in that place, God made a promise to Adam's race and said, this woman with whom you're in strife shall bear the seed of eternal life. This one that you've been arguing and snipping at you guys Adam you didn't stand up and be the man in the house and you didn't say wait a minute we're not going to listen to that lying snake because we have a father that we love and trust and this snake is lying to us he didn't he was the silent partner the way so many times men are come on brothers rise up and be men Look at your wives when she maybe is confused a little bit and be a man of God and, and, and have the word of the Lord in your mouth and bring a comfort and bring stability and encourage and strengthen her. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching so good. Now, I know there's some sisters in the room that you got it by yourself and thank God you have. You, there would, you wouldn't have a family if you hadn't held it together. And we honor you. But, but God's best is to have a man who honors God and who covers and protects his wife, and she and the two of them walk together hand in hand. Not he's better or lording over her and she's subservient to him, but they walk together as partners side by side. Don't shout me down. I know I'm preaching real good right now. <laughs> Human desperation met God's prophetic declaration, and he said the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's seed. This this seed of the woman, this man-child, this Jesus, this Yeshua HaMashiach will bruise the heel, the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of this Messiah, this coming one. Right there in that spot on that place in Genesis 3.15, in the middle of all the curse and the darkness that had crept in and invaded the beauty of God. God says there's one that's coming that's going to straighten all this out. And it took thousands of years. And here Jesus comes on the scene. And there's the fulfillment of every one of those Old Testament prophecies. Tied up and invested in one man. Jesus is the hope of God. Somebody say amen. God's own expectation is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus who is the head and Christ who is the body. And I'm looking at the body of Christ this morning. You're to be filled with the hope of God so that you are infectious and you are contagious and you're to walk out of this place and invest that hope into your community, into your neighborhood, into your schools, into your next-door neighbor. You're to, as Jesus said, if someone implores you to go a mile with them, don't just go the mile they've asked, but go the second mile. It was Zig Ziglar, the Christian motivational speaker that said, there's not a lot of traffic on the second mile. How many of you know what the second mile is? The second mile is, is not necessarily getting up and going to a foreign nation as a missionary. The second mile is reaching out to the neighbor you've been mad at for 10 years. The second mile is deciding to love your wife, even if she is a whatever you put in the blank. The second mile is to love your husband, even though you know if he's a whatever you put in that blank. Second mile is to choose to love and lead your children. Second mile is to forgive those who have hurt you and to pray for and love your enemies. Anybody can love the people that love you back. Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. Now, I don't hear a whole lot of preaching on that in the Bible Belt South. We want to pray down curses on their head. I mean, What if we just actually really did love our enemies and do what Jesus said and prayed for those who despitefully use us? Because the Bible said we'd be blessed if we got treated like that. Oh, I don't care. I don't want that kind of blessing now. Y'all get anything out of this this morning? God has some hope. And I'm to my last point. Do you know the Bible calls God the God of love? It calls him the God of peace. It never calls him the God of faith. But it does call him the God of hope. God of hope, Revelation chapter 15. Look at this verse. Read it with me. May the... God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may what? Abound in hope. And it's kind of like you get a little bit of this stuff, and it's like yeast in the dough. It just multiplies, and it sort of invades the whole area, ultimately, finally. And I remember when dawn first passed, Carol Daigle, the prayer warrior, prayer leader of our church, sent me a card and had this very scripture in it, and it impacted me so deeply. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God has hope for you. God is the God of hope. That means he is the storehouse where the resource of all the hope is. He's the God who has hope. He's the God who gives hope. He's the God who invests hope. He's the God who invades your tragedy with hope. So you can lift up your eyes and see things with a new perspective and a fresh understanding. Jesus is the hope of the world. And the local church is the vehicle for representing, for representing for representing that hope to the world. My mentor, my last story, and I'm finished. My mentor used to tell a story about a couple of boys that were born into the same family, well-to-do family. Dr. Kelly Varner was a mentor to me, and some degree a spiritual father, grew up under his teaching, author of about 60 books, phenomenal theological mind, trained me in the love that I have for the word of God, and for the spirit of God. And he used to tell a story about a couple of twin boys that were identical. They looked just alike, but their parents were scared because of the vast difference in their personalities. One was absolutely hyper-optimistic, and the other one was the other extreme, hyper-pessimistic. No matter what they faced, it was a, an exercise in extreme responses, And so they were advised by a particular behavioral expert just to attempt to try something, to teach them a lesson, to see if they could bring them to a place of balance because they were constantly back and forth at each other, one always seeing uh, uh, an opportunity in every problem, the other one always seeing a problem in every opportunity. And so the behavioral expert said, I want you to give them two presents. I want you to give the pessimist twin the shiniest, new, most expensive bicycle that you can buy him. And he said, I want you to give the the optimistic twin, I want you to wrap up the biggest box of horse manure that you can and wrap it in paper and put a bow on it and give it to the the optimistic child. Now, I don't know if this story is true, but there's a great bottom line coming, so hang with me. And so the parents really questioned it, but they said, okay, what else do we have to lose? And so they bought the the pessimistic son, a really expensive, just state-of-the-art, Amazing, shiny, beautiful red bicycle. And as soon as he unwrapped it and he took it out of the box, he said, well, I'm not going to ride this. I might fall off and break my leg. He was a true pessimist. And the other little boy who was the optimist Started opening his present and started smelling something and got kind of a strange look on his face and opened it wide open and saw the biggest, hugest box of horse manure he'd ever seen. And immediately he started jumping up and down. He said, Where's my pony? Where's my pony? There's so much horse manure in this box, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Now, I'm going to close this message, and that's not the best churchy illustration I could have found, but you got that, and you won't ever forget it. What I'm trying to tell you right now is some of you in this room have opened up a box of it. You know, presents happen like you see on that, that bumper sticker. You'll get that in a minute. Any, anyway, and in the middle of it, you know, your response is going to dictate how, The rest of your life happens. Do you have a hope that is set in front of you? Because everybody in the room is dealing with some difficulty. Some folk are dealing with tragedy. Some folk are dealing with dire news. Three people's lives ended this week. Two of them got cut short. Trying to minister to those families, trying to encourage them and to bring hope to people who've lost a loved one and grieving. I I just said, look, there are no words, but I just want to tell you that the God who is the God of hope the Bible says he is always ready to help in times of trouble. And, and, and though you may not understand it, you may have questions, I'm just asking you. Matter of fact, I'm begging you just to lean into the strong shoulder of the Heavenly Father who wants to wrap his arms of love and mercy around you this morning. Somebody asked me the last few months, what was my job? I said, I'm a dealer in hope. Because I've got a whole new line of hope that's come into my life. It's the best hope I've ever seen in my life. This is some amazing stuff. It's better than drug. You, you can go a few days without water. You can, you can go weeks without food. You can go a few minutes without air. But I don't really believe that you can live one second without hope. I believe God intends for you as a man, a woman, especially a new creation made in the image of his son Jesus, To walk out of this place with a tank full, it's registering, bouncing on the F, and you got a full tank, and you got a whole lot of miles that you can go to empty because your tank has been topped off with hope this morning. And maybe you're sitting here and you go, Pastor, yeah, I'm a little encouraged, but I don't know. My, I think there's something wrong with my tank. I think it needs to be flushed out because there's a lot of trash in the line. This morning, if you've never crossed the line of faith and and trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, He'll he'll give you a whole new engine and a whole new gas tank. He'll put hope in your heart like you've never had before because He wants you, by the power of the Spirit, to abound in hope. He wants you to have so much hope that you're hopeful and you're hope-filled, and hope spills out and becomes contagious out of your life and out of your mouth, and it becomes infectious. You get around people and they leave full of hope because they've been around you. That's the hope invasion. God's hope for the world was that he sent Jesus. And now Jesus' hope for the world is that his body, the people who are filled with his spirit, would take that same hope to the same dying world. Jesus is the hope of the world, but the church is the instrument that carries that hope to the world. Are you hopeful this morning? Has your life been invaded with hope? Hope brought some, some sisters with her. She brought some joy and some peace since hope has been reborn in my heart. And every day I still say it. I wake up and I go, I choose joy. I'm thankful that I have a choice. I stood in my bathroom this morning and I looked at the picture of Dawn on her vanity over there. And I just said, baby, I miss you. I'm sorry, I don't want to be sappy. But I'm going to tell you if it weren't for the hope of God to carry me these two years and these months, I wouldn't, couldn't be standing on this platform I couldn't have finished the job that God sent me here to do, which is not just to get a building erected out there, but to build a people that are full of hope. Because God wants to take your mess, and he wants to make it a message that will touch somebody else. And the junk that you're going through right now, it may be the biggest box of horse manure that you've ever seen in your life don't look at a new bicycle and go, I'm not going to ride that. I'll probably fall off and break my leg. Come on, don't be that. God's not called you to be the wicked witch of the West in your pessimism. Get delivered from that nonsense. Come on, be the kid that looks at a box full of huh and says, where's my pony? In the middle of all of the darkness and the evil and the crime and the theft and the the racism and the bigotry. I'm looking and I'm seeing a world that is beautiful with amazing people who love each other and forgive each other, with creative gifts, with provision that God has given. And if you get so focused on what might happen and the bad that is around us, you will forget the goodness that God has. And you need to be a person that says, where's my pony? Where's my pony? Let hope invade your lives this morning. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a closing word of prayer.